Well, good morning. I invite you again to take your Bible and turn to, this time, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, and again, you'll find that in the Pew Bible if you're using it on page 909. And for those of you who are visiting with us, again, so glad that you're here. Hope that you'll be back. Uh, We are uh, through a series on the book of Acts, and uh, we are working our way uh, pretty uh, methodically through, especially these first few few verses, Uh, but we'll take some larger sections as we uh, get into the the more the heart of this book. Uh, But these first few verses are so pivotal in the life of the church and the understanding of who we are as Christians. In fact, uh, this sermon, along together with the last two sermons, uh, have kind of emerged as what have become a what has become a mini-series, a three-part mini-series, mini-series on Christianity, the basis of Christianity. Uh, so t- three weeks ago, uh, we asked the question, "What is Christianity all about?" And we looked at the fact that Christianity is all about a king and the kingdom. Kingdom of God is what Jesus came preaching in the Gospels. The book of Acts begins with Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God in chapter 1, and then in chapter 28, near the end of Acts, we find Paul in the city of Rome under house arrest, but he's still preaching about what? The kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, but also the king, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Christianity is all about, but the question that we dealt with last time was, where is the power of Christianity? It's kind of an uncomfortable question for us to consider, I think, if we'll be honest, because the idea of there being power associated with religion has been abused throughout the ages. And yet, when we look at the answer given in Scripture, we find that the power for Christianity is not the power of charismatic personalities, it's not the power of politics, it's certainly not the power of wealth, as was so decisively proved in Acts chapter 5 with the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. The power of Christianity is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said in response to His disciples' question, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, where is the power? And Jesus said, well, you will receive power, but it's going to be of a completely different sort that you have in mind. It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses, not only here in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. The Holy Spirit is the power of Christianity. But now the question that we are addressing ourselves with this Sunday is not the essence of Christianity nor the power of Christianity, but the mission of Christianity, the mission of Christianity. We find that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 His disciples a mission. Look at verse 8. I'll read it to you. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The entirety of our time this morning, I want to unfold the significance and the meaning of that five-word command, you will be my witnesses. And it could seem that we are exaggerating the importance of that command by spending an entire sermon on just those five words. I mean, is it really worth it preaching an entire sermon on just five words? But I'll just give you three reasons why this This phrase, this command that Jesus gives is of such importance. It's important, first of all, because it is the parting words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's His last command that He gives to His disciples before He ascends into heaven. Now, we know that last words are important. Some of you who might have been present at the passing of a loved one, maybe you were there to hear that loved one's final words. 
I did not hear the final words of one of my grandfathers when he, pa when he passed away, but I was there very close to the time when he passed away, and I remember his final words to me. They stand out in my mind. It's almost as if a person's final words echo throughout the corridors of time, and they stay with us for a very long time. They're Jesus. This is Jesus' parting command. You shall be my witnesses. So this is a very important. But it's also important because what he says afterwards forms the backbone or the outline of the book of Acts. When he says, you shall be my witnesses, he goes on to say, and you shall be my witnesses where? Geographical locations. Jerusalem becomes the starting point of the spread of Christianity. And it goes, it, it, it spills forth, it gushes forth from that city of Jerusalem to its surrounding regions of Judea. And finally, it goes into Samaria until at the end of the book of Acts, we find the gospel has reached Rome itself. And so this here is the program, as it were, of the Great Commission, the mission of of the Christian people is set in outline form here in chapter 1 and verse 8. And so, this is very important, not just because it is at the, the, the final parting words of Jesus, not just because His words following form the outline of the book of Acts, but also because His disciples' obedience to this command serves as the momentum for the entire action of the book of Acts. You know, if you're into literature, you know the importance of that inciting moment. It's that point of tension after which things get really exciting in the book. If you're into like reading a thriller or something, you're reading the first few pages and then something happens and then you can't put the book down. It's at this moment when Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses, that suddenly it's almost like this, this verse is kind of like a little uh, snowball at the top of a snow-covered hill, and it begins to roll down the hill, and it begins to gather more snow, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets faster and faster until it has just achieved this unstoppable momentum. That's the importance of this command here in verse 8 of chapter 1. Or you can think of it this way, these five little words are kind of like uh, a strand of DNA, just packed with information that provide the life and the shape of the church to follow. So I'm telling you that because I want you to understand why we're spending an entire sermon unpacking the meaning of Jesus' command here in, in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will be my witnesses. Now, the topic then is Christian witness. I'm going to use that term Christian witness to summarize what it means to be a witness of Jesus Christ, Christian witness, and we're going to unfold this in three statements. We're going to find out three truths about Christian witness. First of all, Christian witness is experiential. It's necessary and it's personal. Christian witness is, first of all, experiential necessary and personal. So first of all, Christian witness is experiential. It's experiential. Now, this is embedded in the very meaning of, what, of, of a witness. Uh, you know that, and actually, I was researching the, the, the meaning of this word. It's actually the word martus. We, we get the word martyr from it in English. Uh, in, in the ancient world, how they use it, this was used in a courtroom, just like it is today. They would call forth a witness uh, to testify about something that happened. And if you're going to be a witness, you have to have personally experienced uh, that, that, uh, that crime or whatever it was that you saw. You don't call someone who just has a, an opinion about the crime. You don't call someone forth that just has a speculation about what happens. You call someone forth who actually experienced it. I mean, th this is embedded in the meaning of the word witness is this idea of experiencing. A couple Saturdays ago, 
I, I drove my brother-in-law and his family, together with my family, up to see uh, the White Mountains. And uh, we Granite Staters have, I, I hope all of us here, have experienced uh, the beauty of the fall colors at peak season. And uh, we know what it's like for those trees to transform from being calmly verdant to suddenly being lethal, leafy pyromaniacs. I mean, they just go crazy. They're, they're like on fire. It's like the fireworks. And, and I kept telling my, my brother-in-law and, and his family, you've got to experience it at peak season. This is two weeks ago, and they, they were just beginning to change colors. But because I had experienced the beauty of the fall colors, I was advocating for its reality. I'm like, you haven't really seen anything yet. It's going to be amazing. Why? Because I had experienced it. See, a witness is someone who, based upon his or her experience of a situation, is now advocating for its reality. I know it's true. I know it's real because I've experienced it. That's what a witness is. A witness, Christian witness, of course, is experiential. Now, when Jesus was telling his followers, you will be my witnesses, he was drawing upon their experience of the fact that although he had been dead by crucifixion, now he was alive. We read earlier in the book of Acts that he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. They experienced him. John tells us in his first letter that they actually touched Jesus. They heard him speak. They saw him with their eyes. They experienced the resurrected Christ. And he said, now that you have experienced this, you've experienced the fact that I was dead and now I am alive. Now you advocate for its reality. You tell everybody about this. You are my witnesses. Now when Jesus says that you will be my witnesses, implying, of course, that they had experienced something that they were to tell everyone about. He was actually drawing upon a very important theme that we find all throughout the Bible, that God wants His people to bear witness to His saving love and power. In fact, if you go back to the book of Exodus, right near the, right near the beginning of the Bible, you may remember the story about how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And God did things to the land of Egypt, that fearsome empire. He brought her to, to her knees. This was an amazing uh, salvation uh, that God wrought by bringing His people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And after they came through the Red Sea, God said something to them. He said, you have seen how I bore you on we eagle's wings. I rescued you. And you experience that rescue. And now, God says, this is from Exodus 19, you are to be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's the whole point of that? So that they can tell the world there is no other Savior but Yahweh God. He is the only God. What other God has done this? That's why after the people of Israel crossed through the Red Sea, Moses sings and writes down a song of deliverance. And in this song, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, working wonders, majestic in holiness? There is no other God. There is no other God who takes a people, a humble people, not, not a great people, and he saves them for his own glory. Why? This is a holy God, just like we sang, only a holy God would do this. And he brings his people out so that they can show forth his praises because they are witnesses of his love and power. That's what it means to be a witness. 
You've experienced the, the saving love and power of God. You've experienced the fact that God was a promise-keeping God. He had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't about to abandon his promise. He was going to keep his promise, and he was going to keep it by saving his people, and they experienced it. We also read in, in the book of Isaiah another example of the fact that God has always wanted His people to bear witness to Him. I mentioned earlier during our Scripture reading that it's almost as if his God is, is summoning a court, summoning witnesses, and He's saying, okay, you people who worship other gods, can your gods do what I've done for my people? Now He says, turning as it were to His own people, you are my witnesses that I have saved you in this way. You're my witnesses that I've never abandoned you, that I've never forsaken you, that I've been, you, been with you through the floods and through the fire. God wants His people to bear witness to the fact that there is no other God that saves. All throughout the Bible, we find evidence of this. And so Jesus, as I said, is merely drawing upon this prominent theme when He tells His disciples to be his witnesses. But as I've, I've referred you back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, and then to, book, to the book of Isaiah, but a, a, a problem emerges here. Because while God's people were called to be God's witnesses, they did not do a good job of that. They failed so often. In fact, tragically, after God had brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, assembled them at Mount Sinai, and gave them the law. You know what happened when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law of God. You know what happened when Moses came down from the mountain. What did he see his people doing? What did he see them doing to a golden calf that they had constructed out of their necklaces and earrings? He saw them. Moses saw them dancing around that golden calf and saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. What's going on here? The very people that God had called upon to experience his saving love and power we're not bearing witness to that. In fact, we see this as a theme throughout all the Old Testament, that even though God had displayed His love and power to His people, it just like went right over their heads. It didn't change their heart. And the question is, who is going to bear perfect witness to the fact that God is the one and only God of love and power, of such love and power that can save people from their sins? And it's not until the opening words of the Gospel of John in the New Testament when John says, in the beginning was the Word, that is the one who makes God known, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that we find the only perfect witness to the saving power of God. This is why John writes later on in his gospel, he who comes from heaven is above, referring to Jesus, is above all. He, this is speaking of Jesus, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. How does Jesus bear witness to the fact that God is the one true God? Because Jesus is God. He can say, this is what God is like because he is one with the Father. And how did Jesus bear witness to the saving love and power of God? How did Jesus, what was the main way in which, in fact, the, the final way, the, the pinnacle moment in which he displayed who God really was? Here it was. Here's how Jesus showed the love and power and righteousness of God by dying on the cross for our sins. 
That's God's saving power. That's God's saving love. That's God's righteousness on display. There is the true witness. That's why the Apostle John in the book of Revelation calls Jesus the true witness of God because He alone shows us who God is. Jesus is the only true witness and, because, and by witnessing what Jesus does, we can experience the saving power of God. Christian witness is experiential witness. And that means this, unless you have experienced it, you can't bear witness to it. You can tell people the facts. You can accept to be true certain historical data about Jesus of Nazareth But until you have experienced His saving power in your life, turning you from darkness to the light, turning you from all the idols, all the things you've tried to fill your life up with, only turning to Jesus, you can't bear witness to something you haven't experienced because Christian witness is experiential. To be a Christian is to have experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life. And to be a Christian is not merely to know certain facts about Jesus, although you must know certain facts about Jesus. But the difference between knowing certain facts about Jesus and experiencing the same, the saving power of Jesus is like the difference between knowing that the pew you're sitting on can hold you up and actually resting your weight in it. It's one thing for me to just stand to the side and say, yeah, I believe that can hold me up. But that's not trusting it. That's not resting in it. And it could be that many of you here are here this morning and you know these facts about Jesus, but you're not putting your full weight into it. You you know theoretically that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross and he did it for people's sins. You could even believe that. And you can even believe, based on the historical evidence, that he rose from the dead. But until you call upon him as your Lord and Savior, you have not experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life. And you cannot bear witness to something that you have not experienced. And it could be that when I describe this whole idea of of the comparison with a chair, you know, trusting, knowing the facts about Jesus, but not resting in the facts of Jesus, it could be that you're in that position this morning, you're kind of hovering are trying to hover. Or, or maybe you're undecided. Or maybe it is, it's fear that's keeping you away. You're, maybe you're thinking, I know I should trust in Jesus completely, but can I really, tr- can I really accept what demands that may have on my life as a result? Or it may be out of a sense that it's hard for you to give up the fact That by trusting in Jesus, you're having to say, I'm not going to save myself. Because your attempts to save yourself have done so much to to boost your own self-respect. That's something that you, you love so much. But when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, it means abandoning all efforts to save yourself and relying only on Him. Or it could be that the thing that's kind of keeping you back is the fact that it's hard for you to believe that someone could ever love you that much. 
when you feel so overwhelmed with guilt and so overwhelmed with despair, you think, I I can't be loved that much, and so you just walk away. And whether it's because of fear or whether it's because of pride or whether it's because of despair, wherever you are, whatever condition you are, whatever excuse you have for walking away from putting your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus calls you to Himself. He's saying, can you not trust the one who gave Himself for you? If Jesus loved you enough to give His life for you, cannot you trust your life to His control? And you're worried what He's going to do with your life if you swear your allegiance to Him as Lord and Savior? My friend, He loved you enough to die for you. Cannot you trust your life to Him? Or are you afraid that you're going to mean giving up your pride? The fact that Jesus died on the cross is a public display that our sin is so bad. There's no need to defend it. There's no need to excuse it. My sin is so bad that Jesus had to die on the cross to make it right. That's how bad my sin was. Now everybody knows, okay? That's how bad your sin is too. You know, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it frees you to confess your sin because it guarantees forgiveness in Christ. Whatever your reason may be for hovering or for walking away, Jesus is calling you by His own power, by His own love, by His own death on the cross to trust in Him. There's another application that arises from the, from the fact that Christian witness is experiential, and it is this. Maybe you say, well, I know I'm trusting in Jesus as my Savior, but it's very difficult to bear witness to something that you're not actively experiencing. You say that you believe in Jesus, that He is powerful enough and loving enough to save you for all eternity. Now, are you bearing witness to that love and power by the, way, by the way you live? Are you right now experiencing the saving power of Jesus in your life? If not, how can you, ex- how can you be expected to bear witness to that power by your life? It could be that at work among your coworkers, they know you're a Christian. And for what for, for all they know about Christianity, they know perhaps at least that you are depending on God to save you for eternity. And yet maybe they wonder why, if God is powerful enough to save you for eternity, why is He not powerful enough to save you from your bad attitude on Monday morning? If He's, not power, if he's powerful enough to preserve your soul through all eternity, is He not powerful enough to rescue from your sense of despair on Tuesday afternoon? or your pride in insisting that you were right when really, admittedly, you were wrong on Friday morning. If God is is loving and powerful enough to save you from your sin for all eternity, is He, are you experiencing right now the power of love and God to save you from your sin this coming week? And are you bearing witness to the saving power of your life because of the transformative experience of the saving power of Jesus in your life? I think a reason why Christian witness is so weak It's so flimsy. It's so pathetic because we are not experiencing the ongoing transforming power of Jesus in our lives on a daily basis.
Christian witness is experiential. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. You see, Christian <laughs> growth as a Christian doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean perfection. Jesus, Jesus calls us to follow him. It does mean that you have the freedom and humility to admit when you're wrong and to joyfully pursue righteousness. And where do you get that? Only from a saving experience of the power of Jesus. Only as you have a fresh daily recollection of his love for you and triumph over your own sin through his death. Now, that is the first point that Christian witness is experiential. But let me hasten to the second implication from this sentence. You will be my witnesses. And that is that Christian witness is necessary. It's necessary. What, after all, makes it so necessary? Note the tone of urgency that Jesus gives here. Not only is it found in the word, you shall be, you will be my witnesses, but also as it provides the momentum, the action, the inciting moment for all the events to follow here in the book of Acts. What makes Christian witness so necessary. And there's two main reasons, two broad reasons I'm going to give you. I'm going to color them in uh, just briefly, but the two reasons are these, because Jesus changes everything, and second, because this is not universally understood. The reason why Christian witness is so necessary is because Jesus changes everything and because this is not understood by everything. I think we could lay it down as a principle that the more important the event the more urgent we've, urgency we feel to share it. If, for example, Galileo, when he turned his telescope to the night skies, observed only a firefly wandering across the telescope, that would have been a discovery, uh, to be sure. It would have been something perhaps to report on. Uh, it certainly would not have been very paradigm-shifting for the world. Uh, but the fact that when he turned his telescope to the night skies and observed that Jupiter had four moons uh, revolving around it. Now, that was significant because up to that point, uh, still many people believe that every celestial body was circling the earth. And now he, was, he had another important discovery, and that was worth telling other people about. See, the, the urgency and the necessity and the importance of reporting on something that you experience is proportional to the urgency with which you should report it. I was considering uh, earlier this week uh, the Francis Scott Key and his penning of the National Anthem. The, during the War of 1812, uh, Key, who was at that time a district attorney, watched in, in agony as the British forces were pummeling uh, the American forces during the Battle of Baltimore. And the victory, it seemed, was decisive, indecisive rather, until dawn when he can see that the flag was still there giving rise to that beautiful poetic expression as asking whether we can still see the flag by those bombs bursting in the air. And yes, it was there. The flag was still there. And that was worth writing about because it was so important. Now, Jesus Christ has done something so important that causes any scientific discovery or any political battle or any military battle to pale into absolute insignificance. And that is this, Jesus has conquered sin and death. And Jesus changes everything. You see, when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, he was referring to the fact that they had witnessed what was the darkest day in human history. 
a sinless man, a righteous man, was dying as a criminal. If the story had ended there, it would have just been a sad confirmation of everything that the cynics believe is true about the universe, and that is there is no meaning to morality whatsoever. We're destined to create our own meaning, to try to claw our way through this dark and perplexing world. And yet when on the third day Jesus rose from the dead, it was a vindication of everything Jesus said and everything Jesus was. When the disciples had observed Jesus' death, those of, those who, of them who were present at Jesus' death, it seemed like the, the worst thing in the world, that this righteous man was dying. Does not God care about righteousness? Is there no right and wrong in the world? Is God dead? Is this the end of things? But on the third day, when Jesus rose from the dead, they realized, oh, he wasn't suffering for his own sin. No, there is meaning to the world. There is right and wrong. He was suffering for the sins of other people, and he is the righteous son of God, and God has given proof of this by raising his son from the dead. There is salvation. That is what the apostles witnessed, and that changed everything. And I wish I could recount to you all the many things that changes, but I have to confine this to just three categories. It shows us the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and bearing witness to that shows us that right and wrong are real that right and wrong are real. The question that we ask is, is morality just a hiccup in our evolving brains? Did we just invent this whole category of right and wrong to keep people under domination? Is this some sort of social thing going on or are right and wrong categories that God has created and He's going to judge the world by right and wrong? And the answer we find very clearly in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 when Paul is speaking to the academics and philosophers on the Areopagus at Athens and he says that God has given proof of this, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He is going to judge the world in righteousness. Right and wrong are real. Second, it shows us that human history has a purpose. Human history has a purpose. It, is history just one insane spiral of, of reincarnations? Is all this just going to happen again eons from now? Or, on the other hand, is the last member of the human species going to gasp their final breath on some cold and distant planet as, sun, as the sun reaches heat death? Is that where everything is going? The Bible says, no, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that history has a direction and it's going toward a day when God is going to make everything right and make all things new and Jesus Christ is going to stand as the judge of all. He's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of. It changes everything for everybody. That's important. That's why Christian witness is necessary. You can't be neutral to that message. You can't stand by and say, oh, that's an interesting intellectual tidbit. That's just a fascinating thing to consider. No, this is urgent. This is necessary. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life and work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Right and wrong are real. History does have a destination. And third, it shows us that we can't save ourselves. Only God can. If Jesus had stayed dead, then we would have just been consigned to try to figure things out on our own. But he didn't stay dead. He conquered death. He rose from the dead. And here is a Savior that has come to say, look to me and believe. 
Christian witness is necessary because Jesus changes everything, but also because not everybody recognizes this. And this is not just an issue of ignorance. It is the fact that we live in a world in which the lordship of Jesus Christ is hotly contested. Can we really save ourselves? Is the answer in politics or better education or moral improvement or whatever else you may suggest? Or is Jesus the one and only Savior of the world? We live in a, in a climate very similar to the climate of the Old Testament when God lines up all the witnesses to the false gods and says, can you come forward and bear witness to any God that saves like, like I have? The resurrection is one way God is lining up all the witnesses. He calls forth His people, you and me, as an army of witnesses who have personally experienced the saving power of Jesus. And he says, can you bear witness to the fact that I and I alone save? The lordship of Jesus Christ is hotly contested. That's why it's so necessary. Jesus changes everything. But not everybody understands or accepts this. And finally, Christian witness is personal. Christian witness is personal. If you look at the text in verse 8 of chapter 1 again, Jesus uses these personal pronouns. He says, you will receive power, and then you will be my witnesses. This is a very personal thing. Now, Jesus didn't say, you are to go uh, and deliver a message he didn't say, you are to go and pass out religious pamphlets. Although delivering a message and passing out religious pamphlets may be important ways to get the facts to people. And yet what Jesus said is far more than that. He said, no, you are the message. You are the message. Y yes, you need to use your words. Yes, you need to explain some things. Yes, the gospel is content. There, there are historical facts to recount. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, these are the facts of the gospel. Jesus died according to the Scriptures, and He rose again according to the Scriptures, and He was seen by many. And, and those are the facts of the gospel. And, and yet, it is more than facts. If it were just facts, God, can have, God could have written a letter to the world. In fact, God could have sent a host of angels to report on the facts, but He didn't. He sent people who are transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ and says, you're the message. Now you go and you be my witnesses with your life, with the transformed power of Jesus living within you. You go show the world what it means that Jesus saves and that He's alive and that the gospel is not just words, it's power and that the Holy Spirit is alive and active among you. That's what Jesus was saying. You are my witnesses. You know, there are there's so many ways that you can get the gospel, that is the facts of the gospel to people, but only lives can touch lives. And that, was, that is what Jesus is calling us to do. Why is personal witness so important? Why is it so important that we witness as persons? Personal witness shows the love of Jesus. Not only to those who don't know the love of Jesus, but even within, even within the church. That we are to love each other as He loved us. What's happening within the church as Believers in Christ show love for one another. They're bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ. 
What happens when two believers in, in, in Christ, two people are in the church, and one has offended the other, and there's need for forgiveness? Here's how they bear witness to Jesus Christ. They forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven them. There's forgiveness that is bearing witness to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. What happens when someone has fallen into some sort of sin and there is need of restoration? Well, those that are spiritual, those that are mature, should restore such one in the spirit of meekness, in the power and love of Jesus Christ. They are bearing witness to the love of Christ. Personal witness can be loving witness, but personal witness also shows, not only does it show the love of Jesus, it shows the power of Jesus. Consider the power at work in bringing a self-righteous, proud Pharisee such as Saul of Tarsus from a place where he thought he was doing God a service by dragging men and women into prison because they believed in Jesus Christ to now preaching Jesus as the Christ. I mean, that's power, isn't it? That's the power of a transformed life. And Jesus is still demonstrating his power by transforming people's lives today. I wish I could begin sharing this with you, but I, get, I, I have the privilege of talking with people and, and sharing with, uh, people sharing with me how Jesus saved them from their sin. Just within the past couple of weeks, I had a lady t- share with me how Jesus saved her from her sin. Not the kinds of sins that you might think, but the sin of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. That's the power of Jesus at work. That's bearing witness. That's the power of personal witness, personal Christian witness. But personal witness also shows the worth of Jesus. Not only the love, not only the power, but also the worth of Jesus. When people tell other people about Jesus, that's one thing. That's good. But when people suffer to tell other people about Jesus, that shows, that shows how worthy Jesus is. And in fact, that's why the word, as I mentioned near the beginning of the, of the message, the word translated witness is the word martus, from which we get the word martyr. Because of a, a martyr is a person who has said with his or her life, this is how much Jesus is worth to me. Jesus is worth more than life. Jesus is better than life. We often think that when someone gives their life as a martyr, then, then it says mostly something about them, about how noble and courageous they are. But that's not why they died. They did not die to make a statement about how great they are. They died because they have a great Savior. You see, the ultimate witness that is martyrdom is bearing witness not to the greatness and courage and and sacrifice of the martyr, but the greatness of that martyr's Lord and Savior who is Jesus Christ. That's why there are some lands, there are some territories that have been so close to the gospel that it was only through someone actually dying to demonstrate the all-supreme worth of Jesus Christ that that region was able to be opened to the gospel so that people would believe in Jesus Christ. That's why long ago, hundreds of years ago, someone said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because it was people who were not only willing to show the love of Christ and the power of Christ, but also the all-sufficient supreme worth of Christ in everything. But to be clear, my friends, it's not just in these 
dramatic end of life occurrences like martyrdom that we personally bear witness to Jesus. But I can recount with joy that I have seen in so many of you walking through dark valleys with you your testimony that Jesus is better than anything. Through the death of loved ones, the unexpected and tragic death of loved ones, I've seen the power of Jesus at work in your life, giving you comfort where everyone would say there's no comfort here. In physical weakness and pain and suffering, the Lord Jesus, through his saving power, giving you joy and strength and energy to share the gospel with other people around you where other people would say there's no worth it. It's not worth it. What are you doing? You're bearing witness to Jesus. You're being, you're being Jesus' witnesses. I could end this sermon by appealing to your sense of duty and saying, okay, now you must be Jesus' witnesses. You must be, and that's true, we must be. But let's be careful not to try to be something, not try to witness to something that we're first not experiencing in our own lives. After all, didn't Jesus tell his own disciples, wait at Jerusalem? Wait until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit and then you'll be my witnesses. The thing to ask yourself is this, am I experiencing the love and power of Jesus at work in my life right now? If not, don't try to be a witness to something you're not experiencing. On the other hand, if you are experiencing it, and if you do know the saving love and power of Jesus, then what is holding you back, my friend, from doing exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8 and being his witnesses? Would you bow your heads for prayer? Actually, I think it'd be helpful for us before we respond in singing to take a moment and just pray back to God something that God has spoken to you through His Word. Just for a moment of, of quiet, would you pray right there in your seat? Pray something back to God, whatever God has been working in your heart. We'll take several moments of quiet. Our Father, we thank you that the same power available to the disciples is now through your Spirit available to us to knock down fortresses of pride and to raise up valleys of despair. So the plain will be level and even so that everyone would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you stir in our hearts, continue to stir in our hearts 
to look to Jesus and to continue to look to him even as we seek to be his witnesses. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. It would be appropriate after...